for so long we've been working with fungi to achieve various ends, like for example using yeast which is a fungus or baking bread and medicinal fungi helping us to heal our bodies and um, psychedelic fungi helping us to heal our minds and this has been part of the human experience um, forever. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to episode 18 of Science Town. In 1753, Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus divided life into two kingdoms, plants and animals. Humanity had to wait until the dawn of disco, however, for fungi to get a kingdom all its own, and for good reason, fungal life, while intimately linked to our own, is not well understood. In this episode, we speak with author Merlin Sheldrake, as well as a number of researchers about the humble fungi and how its mysterious properties might be put to some very practical uses in medicine, agriculture, environmental cleanup, and even the rescue of honeybees. Enjoy. I've been interested in the natural world since I was a child, and uh, often interested in these transformations that take place. You know, a log becomes soil. Um, how? How does decomposition happen? That's Merlin Sheldrake. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. He received a PhD in tropical ecology from Cambridge University, and he worked as a research fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. Merlin joined us from his home in the UK during the pandemic to talk about his book, and his research into this lesser-known kingdom. When someone explained to me about decomposition, it was a really big thought for me. And, and you know, we live and breathe in the space that decomposition lives behind. And I became interested in these creatures which are invisible and which are responsible for so much, and yet which we don't notice in our everyday activities. And then I became, as my biological studies progressed, I became more and more interested in symbiosis, this living together of, of unrelated organisms. and. Um, a fungi are such big uh, symbiotic players in the history of life. Um, they're fundamentally interconnected organisms. They are living networks. And so you don't get far without running into some other fascinating thing. It's like running through this sort of maze with forking paths and your interest just scatters out in front of you. As a non-scientist, I, I really connected with how oddly these organisms behave. I'm going back to this uh, uh, definitely a false dualism of plant or animal, but fungi seem to do some other things. Um, so, so perhaps talk a little bit about the ways that people might find uh, fungal life surprising and unexpected. Fungi are a whole kingdom of life, as broad and busy a category as animals or plants. And so there are many ways to be a fungus. We're animals that walk around, move around with, our, uh, with a brain, and a brain encased neatly in the kind of suitcase of our skull. And we perceive the world and deal with the world in certain ways because of that, because of our limitations. And that some of our limitations are also our great strengths. Mm. And fungi don't 
do this. They live their lives most of the time as these branching, fusing networks of tubular cells called mm -hmm. mycelium. And mycelium is how they feed. They have to put their bodies in their food, unlike animals which put the food in their bodies. And mm -hmm. because the world is unpredictable and it's not clear how exactly they'll can counter their food, um, they have to be able to change their shapes. So they can't have a fixed body plan. They can't have a fixed developmental program. And um, that means that they're what we call indeterminate, biologically, developmentally indeterminate. You can cut off a tiny fragment of a, of a mycelial network and it can grow into an entirely new organism, regenerate into an entirely new network. Um, and when you grow the network in one place, it will be very different from if you grow it in another place under certain conditions, again, very different from those conditions over there. Right. Uh, and so this plasticity um, is, is strange for us. And also, the, um, this way that they can um, coordinate their behavior without a central place to do so. So fungal coordination takes place both everywhere at once and nowhere in particular. And this is also a puzzle for us because we like having places. We have all these places in our body where certain things happen. So right. division of labor, you know, you have the a liver and we have hearts and we have brains and all these organs do different jobs. And so we're look, used to looking for different parts of an organism where different things happen. Um, and fungi do have places where different things happen, but they have many of many of all of the places where different things happen. So um, that's another way that they confuse us. If you don't locomote like humans do, um, then it makes no sense for you to to contain all of your valuable things in one neat place. Because if something came um, and ate you, then um, or took a bite out of you, then you'd be uh, in trouble. Which is why it makes no sense for a plant or a fungus to have a brain, you know, because it makes them immensely vulnerable. Much better to disperse one's um, capabilities uh, and to be able to regenerate. And this is what we're talking about, this regeneration um, ability to, um, to form a whole new network from just a, a fragment. So these ideas of individuality are really questions rather than answers known in advance. And once we start to uh, relax some of our human-centric, anthropocentric certainties, um, then life starts to look a whole lot more interesting and these things stop being problems but just being different ways of, of being. Well, I'm so glad that you, you touched on, on that in particular because um, one of the other parts of the book that I found really fascinating was then in a decentralized system how these uh, fungi actually communicate over vast distances incredibly rapidly. So g give us a, a sense for how they do that and, and what you found in um, researching and writing the book. It's been a puzzle for a long time, the way that these fungal networks stay in touch with themselves. How is it that they can coordinate their activity? How can the part of the network over here know um, what's going on in the part of the network over there? And how can they integrate this information? Mm -hmm. um, these different data streams pouring in from all these different parts of a network. And one of the really fascinating um, pieces of research that's been done is uh, looking at the electrical properties of these fungal cells, these long fungal cells which tangle into this, um, these mycelial networks. The question is how could you have some kind of rapid signaling system, rapid by fungal standards, signaling system. And so this researcher called Stefan Olsen found that if you insert electrodes into fungal cells, you can find in many types of fungus uh, 
uh, electrical impulses, analogous to the action potentials that we find in our neurons, mm. uh, passing down the fungal cells at, um, in a rhythmic way and in a responsive way. So if you, know, you can stimulate the fungus um, to produce more action potentials or fewer action potentials. And so he proposes that these, uh, this electrical signaling is a way that fungi stay in touch with themselves and coordinate their activity over potentially large distances. Mm. And it's thrilling, a thrilling thought because normally we think of electrical signaling as um, an animal talent, but actually it's far from that. And since 2015, we've known that bacteria also use action potential like signaling to coordinate the activity of whole colonies of bacteria. Uh, plants too conduct action potentials yeah. and um, and so here we are with yet another type of organism using electrical signaling to coordinate its behavior. This is a very very ancient thing as old as cellular compartments themselves. There's been a lot of discussion over the last uh, few years uh, by um, Michael Pollan, by Paul Stamets and others um, about the potential therapeutic uses of um, psilocybin in particular. Um, and as a person who in the book describes an experience with this, perhaps it would be fascinating and enlightening to have you explain what your brain does when it encounters uh, psilocybin? What is that like? What is the visceral lived experience for you? So it's very different depending on the context. Yeah. You know, everyone talks about set and setting with psychedelics and right. one can take psychedelics in one situation and have quite a different experience than if you take it in a different situation. Um, my experience in general is that the, the perceptual filters that I'm accustomed to experiencing in which I, uh, which guide my experiences in most of my waking days mm. that help me go about my chores and my tasks. Um, these become, I realize that these are just a very small fraction of the perceptual filters and possibilities that I'm capable of. And so these everyday types of experience and everyday types of thinking um, shrink to become rather than the totality of me, they become just one way that I can experience, just one way that I can perceive mm. amongst many, many others. And for me, this is very refreshing. And I think it's this kind of experience which lies at the root of the therapeutic potential of psychedelic drugs. And once we realize that the way that we're perceiving and thinking and experiencing and feeling is not all of us, just one way that we are used to doing that, mm -hmm. then it's easy to break, say, habits, habits of thought, the rigid pessimism that leads to depression, um, certain habits of thought that lead to addiction, um, these types of behaviors which psilocybin is um, able to relieve mm -hmm. with remarkable, uh, remarkable efficacy, I think is to do with its ability to loosen these well-worn habits of our thoughts, to put them into this perspective um, and to give us a whole new scale of experience and a whole new vantage on our uh, sensorial uh, capacity.
then that opens up an even wider thing. So, so uh, there's the development of potential treatments, which is, is very interesting. And I, I believe it's happening in clinical centers now. It's, we finally sort of turned the corner on um, the hangups that we've had globally, uh, thanks to the 60s. Um, so so what, what sort of things are happening in clinical centers um, right now in terms of understanding psilocybin? Well, I think there's, there's a kind of um, wild proliferation of research going on right now mm. uh, because these licenses are being granted for research, certainly in the States and in the UK um, and in other, other European countries, mm-hmm. because it's becoming very clear very quickly that there's a lot of potential mm. therapeutic, therapeutic use. The general formula is that someone shows up and they have some kind of preparation, um, talking to some a th- a therapists or some people playing some kind of therapeutic role and then you'd go into the experience you would have um, some kind of uh, comfortable safe space with people on hand in case you had a hard time and then you'd have some kind of integration mm-hmm. um, counseling afterwards to help you make sense of your experience and to to take it on board mm-hmm. and um, to weave it into your to the bigger story of your life right which is not completely different from what a shaman would do or um, uh, a psychotherapist or, or anything else, I suppose. Totally. So people describe it as psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Mm. Um, it's not just giving people a drug and letting them do whatever they like. It's you know, setting up a, a, a framework and a context and, um, and then dropping the psychedelic into that framework. It's exciting that in recent years people have started to to think in more deep and um, in thinking new ways about how we can partner with these organisms to help us adapt to life on a damaged planet and what that might look like and how some of our problems um, might be metabolized or transformed by fungi and our fungal relationships. So I think it's very exciting. Um, Of course, as with any human endeavor, these things can go wrong when it hits uh, unrelenting corporate greed. unceasing drive for extraction of value or wealth you know these things are basic human problems and um, we're likely to see that kind of problem in the um, fungal space as well Um, but overall I'm very excited by the prospect of working with fungi to to help alleviate our problems. Um, One of those um, capacities for alleviating problems is mycoremediation what what is that and what um, potential is there um, to use microremediation? Just as we might recruit a fungus to turn um, turn rice or soybeans into miso, or to turn sugar into alcohol, um, we can recruit the we can recruit fungi and their astonishing metabolic abilities to transform. Um, things in the environment that pollution and pollutants poisons that we've released into the environment or to break down certain types of waste into um, into less toxic components Mm. so microremediation describes the use of fungi to help us um, to decontaminate or um, to process our um, contaminants before we put them in the environment Mm. and there's a lot of potential fungi are are amazing decomposers and metabolically ingenious um, and can digest many things whether it be crude oil or TNT uh, certain types of plastic and are there ways we can 
um, harness these abilities mm -hmm. and to redirect some of our waste streams to um, into these you know, waiting fungal appetites. Um, so it's, it's a field with a great promise. And one of the best ways of thinking about microremediation, and there's a company called MycoCycle working on this now, is rather than wait until the pollutants in the environment, um, catch it on the, on the road to the landfill. So uh, roofing in America, asphalt roofing is a huge waste product. And yes. MycoCycle aimed to intercept the, the roofing before it gets to the landfill to incubate it with certain fungi, which can break down some of these harmful um, constituents and then you have some um, you have some kind of product or material which you can more safely dispose of or to use in other materials mm -hmm. in some kind of constructive way. Mm -hmm. Another uh, sort of offshoot of microremediation is microfiltration using mm -hmm. fungal mycelium blocks of mycelium to filter polluted water because mycelium is this meshwork this this kind of living net you can use it to remove heavy metals from water supply um, or filter out pathogens. And so that's another whole um, kind of subdivision of microremediation, which has also got a huge amount of promise. There is the consumer market and the sort of growing manufacturing market for um, fungi-derived products. What types of things are being made out of fungi uh, that uh, come from a natural place and, and can go back? So one of the really exciting um, potential uses of fungi is in building materials from the mycelium. So encouraging mycelium to grow, say, on, on sawdust or uh, corn, ground-up corn stalks, and then using this composite material that remains to, uh, as building blocks or as um, boards or tiles or um, and packaging, and, and they'll ship uh, thousands of servers a year using mycelial packaging. IKEA are working to develop mycelial packaging solutions. Mm -hmm. And so this is really already taking off. And it's very exciting because not only are you producing a sustainable um, product that can decompose at the end of its life, but you're also uh, disrupting polluting industries. So it's a win-win it's a kind of situation. A win-win or lose for the polluting industry, but a win for everyone else. A leather, you can produce a, a fungal leather-like material, which, um, which is really exciting because you, know, you can using this waste that would otherwise be thrown away, you can produce a valuable product that removes the need for uh, huge fields filled with animals um, and all the problems that that kind of agriculture brings. Mm. And so that's very exciting. Also for food products. So um, there are lots of um, there are various companies working on uh, meat alternatives made with fungi, with mycelial fungi, which can be huge, you know, because we have a a massive a meat problem and uh, a lot of the inefficiencies of agriculture have come because of our, um, our need to feed meat with plants that would um, that could otherwise be fed to humans yeah. uh, and we're much more efficient ecologically so um, so food is a big one too producing sustainable food products using fungi uh, which can grow very fast so in general I feel that we are very much at the beginning of our journey with uh, fungi, in, at least in an intentional way. These fields of inquiry are just beginning to open up and really essentially are unlimited in, 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 in the potential ways we could work with fungi to solve problems and create solutions. What's next for you? Any, any uh, projects uh, that you're working on now? Have you sort of moved on from the book or is it still such a, um, a new project that 
you're, you're still sort of dedicated to that. Although the book has such sticky fingers, I'm, I'm still stuck in it and will be for, for, for another few months. Yeah. Other than that, I'm trying to think about the next type of, uh, the next kind of research I want to be doing, the next fungal questions I want to be answering, um, how I might do that. Well, we really appreciate you speaking with us. The, the book is an absolute joy. Wonderful. Thanks so much. is uh -huh. are we humans associated with microbes or are microbes that are associated with some cells eukaryotic cells that we call humans right exactly <laughs> so change is give a lot of you know even philosophical or perspective yeah. of thinking yeah that is very interesting indeed yeah that's Kaus Professor of Bioscience, Daniele DeFoncchio. His research looks into extreme habitats such as coastal environments and desert oases. He also read Merlin's book, and it led to a fascinating conversation about how fungal microbes make the growth of plants possible, even under the harshest of conditions. I can tell you something of a study that we recently published on date palm. I am personally very fascinated by this plant, because... First, I like it, uh, the shape of the date palm. I like a lot the fluid, <laughs> of course. And, and I like the iconic role that it has in the oasis. The oasis are a sort of paradise in the middle of nothing, mm -hmm. where you go in the desert that is very harsh, very dry, very uh, hot, and then you arrive in this sort of paradise where you feel much more protected, you have the resources, etc. So the environmental context of an oasis is unique. The oasis are the last or one of the few still existing multicultural and multi-crop systems. Mm. If you go in most of the country now, in Italy, in US, the other country of you, there is specialization. Yeah. So you can have a big area only with corn. You can have vineyards in which only grape is cultivated. You can have orchards only in which monospecific, just peach or apple or mm. whatever. In the oasis, because it is in the middle of nothing, you need to have different kind of resources for the people inhabiting the oasis. So typically what you have, you have this shield created by the date palm that create the shade and keep the humidity within the oasis. And in the layer below, you can cultivate the olive tree, the pomegranate, the fruit tree. And below that, you can cultivate uh, alfalfa, you can cultivate wheat, barley, etc. So our interest was to understand, do we have the same microbiomes or different microbiomes in oasis that are far away apart and they live in different soils? Because it is known that microbiomes are shaped primarily by the nature of the soil. So we sampled seven oasis, very distant, in different kinds of environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. And what we found that is that invariably wherever we go in the 
root system, we have always the similar type of microbes. While in the bulk soil, we have different microbes, depending on the geographic location, yeah. the geological nature of the soil. So what does this teach? This teach that a few resources in the desert are just selected by the plant that establish, let's say, capture this kind of microbes and attract to the root, and they are inhabited always by the same time. What does this mean? Mm. That in a practical term, my hypothesis is, given this setting, is that if I take a, a microbial fertilizer, if it is appropriately selected from one oasis, this could work in very different oasis. That's is a major advantage because typically yeah. this kind of system are tailored. If you take a microbe to fertilize, to fix nitrogen, to solubilize phosphorus for the plant, mm-hmm. you have to take from that system and re-inoculate in that system. Right. Well, in this way, I can take from this system, but then I can use 500 kilometers away or in other places. This right. is much practical, much easier. But this is unique for the date palm because in the normal crop systems, wherever you go, you have different type of microbes. So you have, if you want to be successful in a microbial fertilization, yeah. you have to use the local microbes. That's very fascinating too, because it, it, it sort of implies um, a greater resilience. The, these systems uh, in, in a way have have uh, come to the same conclusion independently. Uh, yes. So that's a desert environment. You talked a little bit about coastal environments as well. What what work uh, and what findings have you had from coastal environments? There are two types of forests. One is underwater, the sea grasses. Okay. Uh, but we are mostly interested of those that are on the land are the mangroves. I see. And these are very beautiful environments. They and produce a lot of resources for the system. Mm-hmm. So we are studying how do microbes and other, uh, let's say, organisms in the mangrove contribute to the plant productivity. And we were fascinated by the fact that if you go there, you find a lot of crabs. And these are burrowing crabs. So they, this means that they excavate burrows where they live, mm-hmm. and they graze all around the burrows and they eat the cyanobacterial mat that grow over the surface of the setting. This means that they they do a profound effect because they bioturbate the sediment. So they, for instance, introduce oxygen, yeah. uh, favor the metabolism, the aerobic metabolism, mm-hmm. so the turnover organic matter, the solubilization of nutrients, etc. So what we did, we went there to understand what is the effect of the sediment uh, on the sediment microbiome of this activity of the animals. Mm. And what we found there, with big surprise for us, since the, the system is quite anaerobic because it is waterlogged for a long, long, long time during the day because there is the tide, Yeah. Uh, it is quite anaerobic, so fungi are generally very ana- very aerobic. They require oxygen. What we found is that in each of the layers of the sediment, we have first of all we have different communities. Mm-hmm. So if you look to the first centimeter on the burrow walls, 
you find a certain type of microbiome, very complex. Mm. If you move one centimeter apart, you find another type, completely different, and so on, until the bulk sediment that is uniform. And within these microbiomes, in all the system, except in the depth of the bulk soils, mm-hmm. or the bulk sediment, fungi have a central role in this network of interactions. And it's very surprising. This can teach us that fungi that are very important for the turnover of lignin, for instance, mm-hmm. that is released by the plant, mm-hmm. uh, can play a very important role even in that kind of sediments that are not so aerobic, right? not so oxygenated like other systems. Right. And we are dr- trying to increase our, our knowledge on this system in the mangrove. And that is very fascinating. Anything else um, that you were were thinking uh, on this topic that you wanted to point out? It was very interesting for me. I have to thank you because you got me a push in reading this book. That was very interesting. Yeah. Very inspiring. And also, if you go to look the notes, then is another book. It is. That is very, very interesting. Thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us. We really I thank you. I thank you for, for <laughs> this interview. You're listening to Science Town. Every time that you use bacteria and you discover what they do, you say, how is possible? I mean, <laughs> then you say, wow. <laughs> That's Ramona Morasco. She's a research scientist at KAUST. She spoke to us about her recently published work on the role of fungi in the tummy of honeybees that could bring about critical understanding to the health of the world's most essential pollinators. In my very simple view of how honeybees work, uh, they eat pollen and things, and they digest it, and one of the byproducts of that digestion is honey. No. It's not. They create in another way. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Because, for example, these honeybees that we study are the forager, that are the one that go outside mm-hmm. and collect the pollen for the for the colony. Okay. So they also bring pollen inside the colony. Okay. The one that they eat is t- to survive themselves. That's their food. Yeah. And they make honey through a different process. Yeah. Because I, I so know that... what we are studying now mm. is the fungi that are inside the gut of the honey. Exactly. So basically, the food that the forager mm-hmm. that need to survive, like us, mm-hmm. ingest, and so he has to process in some way. Yeah. So the microbe, including the fungi that are in the gut, help in this process. This is like our uh, microbiome, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Is the same. But in this case, we focus also on the fungi. Because okay. the interesting thing uh, that we found a lot of yeast that do fermentation. I see. And the yeast are known to be st- to stay on the flower, on the pollen, on the nectar, where th- there are a lot of sugar mm-hmm. because they are used to live in this kind of condition. Yeah. So also in the gut of the honey, they are there. And we try to understand possible function of them. Yeah. That is the fermentation of the sugar right. or other compound that the honeybee can ingest. And uh, and so they have enzyme that can degrade this kind of compound that the insect alone cannot. Yeah. 
what did you find uh, in the fungal communities that you were surprised about like uh, when you got in there? Now first uh, a lot of people say no there are no fungi in the Onebio if you look <laughs> to the microscope you will not found them or etc. Right. We found them, right. we visualized the microscope, mm -hmm. we cultivate them and the interesting thing they they are not just uh, like passing through the gut okay, because they are compartmentalized like the microbe. Each compartment of the gut mm -hmm. should have a function they they should give something to the host in the different part yeah are these um are these fungi are they the same across continents since you no this is the other nice thing okay cool. what we found because we compared honeybee from saudi and honeybee from italy yeah and we saw that are completely different community like okay. the one of the rare bacteria so the, the, the additional uh, information, I mean, that we can obtain from this work is that, okay, we have always some group always present in all the honeybee because okay. it's no that are fundamental. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are accessory group like the rare bacteria or the fungi mm. that are acquired by the environment so, for example, flower in Italy will have some fungi, some bacteria, flower here, other. Yeah. But they are acquired and selected by the by the honeybee because they give something to 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 the insect. Yeah. Is there are there learnings from that? Then then you can um, take a step further in terms of helping them. Because I know that um, there's quite a bit of research going on around the world about how to help honeybee honey honey yeah. populations yeah. survive. There are some pathogens that are always micro microbes yeah. of the honeybee, and you can um, fight them with other microbes. Okay. So outcompete them in a way in the honeybee gut or, or something? Now, generally, this kind of treatment. Uh, are done or on the food or on okay. the colony. Okay. So the, the, the bees can acquire this microbe mm -hmm. and produce some molecule that mm -hmm. if the pathogen arrive or air ingest cannot colonize the, the gut. And so you can increase at least the survival of the bees. Interesting. There are a lot of work on this. Because yeah. it's very important because the bees are fundamental. I mean, all the things that we eat, the vegetable, fruit, whatever, the majority, yeah. we need them. Yeah, massively. So you've studied fungi in other uh, settings <laughs> as well. Yeah. So talk a little bit about some of your other uh, work. Okay. So we have uh, several work with the fungi because uh, they are everywhere, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So you look to the soil, they are inside. You look to plant, they are inside. Yes. So basically, our approach is study the entire microbiome. Okay. So both bacteria and fungi. Okay. And we found many interesting things because, r really, if you look first, uh, 
they are much bigger than a normal bacteria. So when you look to them oh. at the microscope, for example, in this work of the bees, uh, you can really see the, the, the yeast, for example, and they can be like a hub of connection between bacteria. Interesting. Because and in the soil or when they are associated to plant, the mm -hmm. fungi have this long, long hyphae that can connect one oh. plant to the other. Mm -hmm. And not only to pass a nutrient from one to the other, but also they are like highway yeah. in the soil. And in general, the multitude of microbes that are attracted, you have a lot of beneficial mm -hmm. that help the plant. For example, they can solubilize some nutrients that are not really available for the plant, like some phosphorus, some uh, iron, I or see. they can fix some nitrogen that in certain soil can be a problem. Mm. They can decompose and the litter of the plant and mm -hmm. so create some carbon that can be used by other microorganisms, etc. For example, in the desert, collect more water. Or for example, they can release some uh, like um, exopolysaccharide substance that basically trap the water in some plant, especially in the desert, mm -hmm. and a portion of soil attached to the root mm -hmm. that is like work like a sponge. Mm -hmm. and, and this is the nice interaction because uh, you give something, so the plant gives some nutrient and yeah. some sugar or whatever, and the bacteria help in another way. I mean, that's what's been so fascinating um, reading about this. There's a whole other world that I didn't realize that does the job of breaking down organic matter in the yeah. soil. Um, but then, as you said, also communicating between plants and things. I guess, uh, again, for, as just a passerby, it would seem that the stuff that's in the first inch of soil would probably be the same that's uh, a foot No, it's down. completely different, it's different because also in this case, uh, since you are changing from the uh, superficial part to mm -hmm. the deep, everything changes. Why? At least in microbiome. Why, why is that? Because the condition of the soil change, okay. the nutrient, the oxygen that can enter or, or not. And, and so all the pH, redox, everything changes. Mm. And so the community that are mainly driving, driven by this kind, drove by this kind of uh, condition yeah. change. So, so in a way, just like with the honeybee gut, you, you're... Uh, most people aren't walking around seeing these slight changes as different environments, but that's exactly for us. Uh, what these you're doing. are, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. W what is amazing of this kind of work that you never have the same community right. here. Also, one millimeter, five millimeter is completely changed. So, how do you even pick like what thing is interesting to look at? Because it seems like. Uh, a stadium full of interesting things to yeah. look at. Yeah, what you mean is uh, in terms of di diversity, the, yeah. the approach to study them is uh, is to use DNA, so the total DNA of the sediment, for example. Interesting, And okay. you amplify it to select a specific gene that are known to be marker for the taxonomy and mm. indicator of the taxonomy. So basically mm. you sequence this DNA and you have thousand of different it's species the in it. collective this is the genetic material interesting yeah. yeah and based on this you can understand the diversity mm. 
So basically, in this way, we saw how the surface is different from the deep, yeah. who dominate the surface, and also using the same DNA, passing through other technique, metagenome, etc., you can understand which is the function of this bacteria. Right. Because you can understand all uh, and uh, reconstruct, build all the pathway, metabolic pathway of them. Mm -hmm. And so you can correlate this function with the condition of the soil, or the insect or whatever you are studying to mm -hmm. understand why I have this difference. Yeah. Is the pH, is the carbo content, is the sugar, whatever, based on your uh, the, the ecosystem that you are studying. If we will be able to understand really what they do, will be very interesting also because it can be a step in the protection of the honeybee and make them more resistant, etc. And the same, the same approach is used for the plant. There are a lot of probiotic for plant uh, formed by bacteria, mycorrhizae, fungi, and they can help uh, the plant under draw, under salt, uh, and whatever. How much has the, the rapid advance of genetics testing and, you know, tech that helps you do this, how much has that changed your work and made it much more possible for you to quickly assess. No, it's a, it's a completely changed, yeah. especially in the micro uh, microbial uh, ecology study right. of microbial community. Every year, change because uh, with mm. the sequencing and the massive sequence technique, right. is amazing what you can do. Right. So, so then, are, are you guys using in a way? supercomputing infrastructure to sort yeah, of Yeah, here in understand. Kaos, uh, we, we use the server, of course, and yeah. uh, to run all our bioinformatic analysis. So basically, you want to know who is there, okay. how many of these, how many of that, and so understand the structure of the community. So a, a census, uh, in a way. Yeah, yeah. And this uh, is basically what we use here. Mm -hmm. So you just target a specific gene. Mm -hmm. Or the other way is do the metagenome. So you sequence everything right. to try to close, to have all the metabolism, all the pathway, close the genome and try to understand uh, the function. No, this is super fascinating. It strikes me that um, uh, in some way your career is also symbiotic. <laughs> you might not be in the kingdom uh, were it for certain... Uh, strains of fungi that's interesting well thank <laughs> you for step. thank you for talking <laughs> to us i really appreciate it thanks to everyone who took part in this episode science town is produced by mark bose alex arias and julie west i'm nicholas demille until next time thanks for listening This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.